Hello everyone, this is Jacob Popio, the producer of the Apex. In this episode, it is another segment of The Disruptor. Jan and Schwez discuss the power of storytelling and how it relates to business. Both Jan and Schwez break down what exactly storytelling is and why it has lasted for so many years. They discuss how every company has a story and how the story is told through their products and services. As innovators and disruptors of the industry in Canton, Ohio, Jan and Schwez talk about how storytelling can be a human-centric approach to providing customers with the best possible experience they can have. From archetypal representations in Disney to hardworking chefs and their own personal stories, this episode is definitely not one to miss. If you want to support us, there are three ways to do so. One is to donate to our cause at www.patreon.com backslash the Apex Podcast. Second, visit our merch line that is proudly partnered with Envision Clothing Company at envisionclothingcompany.com. The final one is completely free. All we ask is if you learn something from this episode or know someone that needs to hear our message, share it with them. Please subscribe and hope this pushes you toward your apex. Hello, beautiful humans of the world. It's your boy Shways. I'm here with my friend Jan. And, what up? And we are the Disruptor Podcast, where we talk about unconventional ideas in the world of industry. Heck yeah, man. Talk about how to disrupt industries from everything from marketing to data to sales to human-centric design thinking, a whole bunch of different phrases that you guys will know and come to learn and love over the next couple of episodes, I'm sure. Yes. So why don't we talk about where this idea for the disruptor came from? Um, so the disruptor really kind of was born um, as a brainchild of uh, myself, um, Popio, um, RJ Holiday, and John Kuntz. So John is a, we, we finally call him our Yoda. <laughs> um, he is a gentleman that was a mentor of ours um, early on in our uh, jumpstart career. Um, and jumpstart for those of you that are listening that don't know what that is. It's a basically an entrepreneurship um, accelerator in, here in K- Ohio, um, especially like uh, the Northeast region and Northeast Ohio. And John was one of our mentors there. And he actually kind of latched on to the idea of the podcast and everything else that was going on. Um, eventually, we kind of decided that rather than just a mentor mentee relationship, it was actually going to be kind of a peer to peer. And he has this mentality that inside of any industry, no matter what you do, you're either actively disrupting that industry mm-hmm. or actively about to get disrupted. So Whoa. like in the first episode, you know, the example that he gave is if you're standing in a tunnel and you see a light at the end of the tunnel, it's probably the train coming to run you over. Wow. So you need to figure <laughs> out where that light is and how fast it's moving towards you so that you can figure out how to divert. And that being inside of business and being that forward thinking, you know, that front end of the bell curve is really just about identifying the train further and further down the tracks. So you're not just constantly walking into a tunnel and then getting the crap beat out of you. Yeah. You're learning how to avoid the tunnel altogether. And then eventually, hopefully, becoming the train Mm -hmm. and then disrupting the industries. I feel like that's what we're doing here with Apex Communications Network. We kind of were that train for a lot of other businesses. Um, We're definitely shaking things up, I think. Yeah, because Canton, Ohio has a very long history where 
you know, businesses are just manufacturing, um, putting products out there. Yep. Um, my personal belief, like I, I've talked to a lot of people about this. It's you can't just have a business anymore. You can't just make a product and put it on the shelf and hope people are going to buy it. Right. Um, it's like you need to have products that are born out of, you know, knowledge of what people need, right. what people want. I agree. Um, and I feel like that's another reason why we're doing this because we're trying, you know, our motto, uh, educate, advocate, empathize, something like that. Empathize, educate, I'm going to learn this motto one day, guys. <laughs> I will. I'm going to get it down. Empathize, educate, advocate. Yeah. yeah. I got yeah. it. Just wrong order. Yeah, close but enough. Close enough. But, we're, but we the order is the really important, you know, yeah. the, the reason behind the, the orders. Because yeah, we don't want to just, you know, make businesses uncomfortable. We want right. to educate them and then, like, be a part of their story. Right, right. So, like, in order to, the, the way that I say, you know, the reason why we came up with empathize, educate, advocate, right? Mm-hmm. And it, this really kind of relates into our topic today about storytelling, Right. you know? Um, the first, I mean, you, the end goal is to be an advocate for our client. The end goal is to be an advocate for a business, mm-hmm. right? But in order to be an advocate, we have to be educated on what that business does. Right. Um, inside and out. Like uh, most marketing agencies will come in and they generally are focused on one singular campaign. Um, I've seen a lot of people be very tactic oriented and mm-hmm. not so much strategic oriented with businesses. Um, so in order to be an advocate, though, that's the end goal. The end goal is to be an advocate for the business. Right. Um, you have to be educated. But in order to be educated on what that business does, you have to be able to empathize with that business. So the definition of empathy is right. Be taking a walk in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you have to be able to put yourself in that business owner's mindset. What are their priorities? What are their top selling products? What are their goals? What are they trying to do inside of the digital landscape? Are they even trying to compete in the digital landscape or are they just a brick and mortar that needs a little bit of help with awareness? Right. You have to be able to empathize in order to educate that business properly, in order to be a proper advocate for that business. Right. That's why we came up with that three-tiered system because we really truly believe that it all starts with empathy. It all starts with putting yourself in the shoes of that business owner and genuinely understanding what their goals are and what worked and what hasn't worked, not just going into there and telling them, hey, we have a plan for you. Yeah. That, you know, it, it may work, but it has a way less likelihood of working if you don't work directly with that business owner because they've been running the business for however long. And although they may not be digitally optimized, they're doing something right if their doors are open. Yeah. So you have to learn from the business owner first. Right. So when we say we're disruptors, it is kind of, uh, I would say, oxymoronic, right? Because we're, yeah. we're, uh, we're not trying to shake things up so much that like, we're the biggest business in town. Right. We're just trying to get businesses to understand how to be more active and be yeah. more present digitally. Yeah, play a more active role in what they have to offer to the world. I mean, mm-hmm. understand, like today, for example, we just met with a client and um, his main concern was like, I know what all of this stuff is. I have no idea how to use it. I'm like, okay, well, let's just start there. Yeah. You know, and, but for every single business that we work with, it's all different and they all have a different story. They all come from different backgrounds. They all come from different places, which is why I love this job so much because, you know, I get to interact with these people across multiple industries from metal fabrication to coffee shops, to international consultants, to 
biotech, mm-hmm. you know, we get to interact with so many different amazing people and they all have a story right. to tell. And that's my favorite part is being able to tell the story. So let's, let's get into this a little bit more because we, we do want to get to the, uh, the storytelling uh, aspect of today's episode. Um, one of the questions I feel like we really need to address is why is storytelling so business? Uh, why is storytelling so important for businesses? Um, I would try to take that back to like why storytelling impacts humans to begin with, you know, and then we can kind of take a path forward into why it's important for business. So storytelling is something that is like anthropologically ingrained in our society. And, and, you know, when, when I first started apex, um, with Jake, um, you know, but this was before RJ was even a part of the team. Mm -hmm. We met every Monday for like seven to 12 hours in the evenings and we would sit on the balcony um, or at the time I worked for a, a company that had kind of a clubhouse and we would sit at that clubhouse and they had like a pool or a hot tub and we'd kind of sit in there and brainstorm ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we always talked about is why do people engage? What makes people interested in what you're talking about? You know, what makes people feel attached to what you've got going on? Right. And so we did these case studies. We started reading these case studies and then just, you know, me and Jake's brains and you've been around us long enough at this point that it's just, you know, once we latch onto an idea, we're beating the living crap out of it until yeah. we understand as much about it as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And storytelling was really that first one. So it's really cool because written language wasn't around for a long period of time. Absolutely. Bef- like, I mean, it's only been around a couple of thousand of years. And before that, it was all storytelling mm-hmm. to the point where like, we actually believe like if you were to go to areas that don't really use written words still, mm-hmm. their neurochemical structure is different than the human brain now that has written word because wow. they're able to memorize things. Like, you know, the telephone game? Yeah. So like <clears throat> nowadays, right? If me and you were to try to do the telephone game with a whole bunch of millennials, mm-hmm. by the time it got to person 16, the sentence, I enjoy tacos, you know, might be something completely different at the end. You know, somebody at the end of that train is going to be talking about an iPhone. And I said, I enjoy carnitas tacos at the beginning. But if you go back and you're looking at these places that are still kind of tribal, you know, they, they, they still use a lot of storytelling to pass down tradition. Mm -hmm. Like 95% of that story maintains accuracy within that 16 person group. There's actually case studies that you could look up on that. So it's super interesting because that means that storytelling is a super, super deeply ingrained part of our brain. Right. You know, it's almost like brainstem level that mm-hmm. stories really hit. Um, and those parts of our brains are still active. So if you can tell a good story, it really helps people remember. It's like when you go into a restaurant and instead of just getting a plate of pasta, you're reading on the plate the description of the type of noodles, the dough that was used to make it, mm-hmm. you know, the types of ingredients that go into the sauce, yeah. where that sauce originated from in Italy, you know, all these other types of things that makes it a full blown experience. And now that coupled with the taste of the food and the smell and the ambience of the, the restaurant and everything creates mm-hmm. a solid memory in your head. That is now a story that you can tell. 
And you, you have a, a really high chance of remembering that because of all the senses that were just engaged. And people, you know, nowadays were not as developed you're not, not developed, but we've developed in a different way because we have access to so much information that we don't have to like remember all of those stories all the time. Mm-hmm. But there's still a really deep ingrained part of us that reacts to those stories because of how long humans just used stories to pass information along. Right. Before written language was even a thing. Right. No, I think you know, this is a really, really interesting topic because you, you brought up food and mm-hmm. I've been watching um, the chef show on Netflix. Okay. Um, and every, every episode, like at some point in the episode, you know, the chef talks about a story Mm. or someone who knows the chef says the chef is trying to tell a story. And I was, I was so confused by that. And I'm like, how do you tell a story with food? Mm. Like that to me was like very, very confusing. And I, I, you know, I didn't get it because when I eat food, I just eat food. Right. But right. as you know, what I eventually I caught on to this is these chefs, right? They are trying to take the person who's going to eat their food back to a time in their childhood. Mm. So it's like it's they're trying to um, bring a sense of nostalgia to that person who's going to eat their food. And I thought that, like... Now that's really crazy because one of the chefs, I can't remember his name, he was talking about how he lost his mom at a very young age. Um, and so when he makes the food, he's, he says, you know, you never really know who's going to walk through the doors of the restaurant. And the reason why I work so hard is because in my head, I'm still hoping that one day it's going to be my mom. Mm. Mm. And I always thought, wow, like you can, exp- like that, type of like, you know, you think about his story and how deep that, you know, he probably thinks about that every day and it right. drives him. And this guy's like, a, he has like a three Michelin star restaurant. For those of you who don't know what a Michelin star is, it's like one of the highest honors you can get. And if you get three of them, like that basically means like your restaurant is worthy enough for the plane ticket alone. Like right. that could be the entire vacation is someone living on the other side of the world, buying a plane ticket to come to your restaurant and eat your food. That's what that means. Right. And so, you know, this guy is, he's, he's like lost his mom. who probably went through like a bunch of terrible shit, a bunch of depression. And, and now he's it was this amazing, successful chef who's still driven by this, this need to fill this void. Right. Basically. Right. And I think another reason why we tell stories is because like, um, we're, we view ourselves as characters in a story and we all want to be a hero, but it's like, wh- what is it that we're trying to combat? And I think in all of us, there's this void that we're trying to fill. Right. I and, agree. and so we listen to the, the stories of the past. Um, and they, they, if, if you listen to, uh, our boy, Jordan Peterson, he talks about archetypes, like stories, the reason why they repeat is because they're so similar, but the reason why they're so similar is because they contain these truths that, you know, human life is a struggle. It is about trying to fill this void. And the best way of doing that is really like thinking about what it is that you're trying to, 
fulfill and just doing it every single day. Right. And eventually, you know, you're going to, it's going to lead to this path of like success, continuous success. Mm. And I think the, the one of the reasons why stories are so important is because they reiterate this fact, like, yes, you're like, life is a struggle, but that doesn't mean that it can't also be this beautiful, wonderful thing. And yeah. I think that's what businesses, uh, any successful business really tries to do. If you look at Elon Musk, right, he's kind of like the most famous entrepreneur for having a hero complex, right? Because he wants to send people to Mars. He wants to transform Mars so that we can make it uh, a planet that we can live on. He's right. working with Tesla because he like he wants to create an electric electric vehicle that you know is gonna disrupt the industry of right. the, auto, uh, the auto, automotive industry. So uh, gas powered cars are a thing of the past, right? Right, but you look at him and he, you know he's he's got a story too where he just wanted like in college he wanted to be a part of things that were going to change the world so instead of waiting for the opportunity he's just doing it right and it's, right. it goes and that i i relate that back to this the chef that i was talking about this guy's just he's just doing it every single day but mm. the drive that's there is the fact that the void really can't be filled, but it's like we're trying to fill it. Yeah, constantly. You, we're constantly trying to yeah. fill it up. And the more the more you fill it, the more like opportunities there are for you to be more successful, connect with more people, you know, go outside of your comfort zone, see who else is out there, see what other people's stories are as well. Right. I think because human beings are such tribal characters, we're always trying to connect, 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 connect. Yeah. We want to see ourselves in those stories. Right. You know what I mean? And like, and you bringing up Elon Musk, like his storyline is very much like the quest, right? Yeah. Like that is, that is a, um, an archetypal storytelling type, right? Is like yeah. a quest right, to, to conquer something or to be the hero of a storyline. Um, and, and, and I love those, archetypal heroes like the mm -hmm. hero storylines i think is something that's extremely powerful because everybody wants to see themselves as the hero of their own story like that's the ultimate goal right um and it can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance it can cause a lot of issues mentally and inside a business or whatever else if you don't see yourself as the hero of your own story right so like that's the first step the first step is understanding that like you are the star you are the star of your own storyline right. and if you don't believe that if you don't believe that you're worthy of being the star of your own storyline, it's going to start causing issues to, from the beginning. Um, I'm going to kind of hit on, on a little bit of like Peterson mm -hmm. um, and talk about the, this, this like a hero's journey. Right. Right. Cause this is one of my favorite things. Excuse me. <clears throat> Whew. That coffee is giving me some heartburn. Um, I had like seven cups of espresso this morning at the meeting. I mean, who, who, who hasn't man? Right. Um, <laughs> So, so the hero's journey, it's really kind of like these, these acts, right? These mm -hmm. steps inside of a process. And really, and if you think of Disney, right, mm -hmm. they use these archetypal heroes storylines all the time. Yeah. What is this? What is a stereotype with like a, a Disney hero or a Disney movie? Like what happens in like the first 10 minutes of the movie? Parents okay. die. Oh, ooh. like every time. Wow. If you think about it, Damn. Anastasia dead, parents dead. Little Mermaid, mom dead, dad's still around. Tarzan, parents died, right? Holy There's some crap. type of disruption in the beginning, 
right? They get separated from something that makes them comfortable. Yeah, I did not even think about this. This is crazy. It's blowing my mind. Right <laughs> yeah, wow. so, so Disney uses these, right? And then that's what makes Disney so powerful. I think all of these storylines, Snow White, right? Parents? Not there. Not there, right? She's got adopted by seven dwarves. Yeah, even Frozen. Frozen? Parents dead. Holy shit. <laughs> you didn't know this? I didn't know this. No way, man. I thought I, I figured I out of all this time that you spent. You, you know what I know about Disney? What? Is like um, Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. It's like a, 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 it's a very old story. It's not, yeah, it doesn't Brothers originate. Grimm. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's like. I think it's the, Brothers Grimm. If, I, if that's not right, audience, I you think can correct right. me. Yeah. But it's like the Disney stories are like, they put a happy ending at the end of these very old stories that have like a, like a tragic ending. That's, Dude, yeah, the Brothers Grimm stories are yeah. dark. They're so yeah. dark. But, that, but that's what I know about Disney. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that most of these stories start with dead parents. Yeah. Well, it, it's dead parents or it's some type of it's some type of conflict, right? Because right. in order to really have a good story, you have to have some type of conflict that gets resolved. Right. Right. Like you can't tell a good gripping story without starting it off with some type of dissonance. Holy shit. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. And Star Wars. Yep. Now, dude, it's going to start messing with you. Every single time you look at something, you're going to start thinking about it. This is what you did to me with UX, because now I can't look at a chair without thinking about how many people probably went into designing the ergonomics of that chair. I can't I can't watch an ad on Facebook without thinking Oh, I wonder like who decided to produce it in that methodology. It's it's a sickness at this point. Like I can't turn it off. So yeah. I'm glad that I'm able to like <laughs> spread this part of the disease to your brain. So now like every time you think about a movie, you're like, whoa. Welcome to the party. But okay. so so anyway, so like this act one is the separation, right? Like okay. you have to have this type of conflict in the beginning. Um, like you think about um like um Pinocchio, right? Uh-huh. Separated, has these issues, goes to the island, gets eaten by a whale. Like all of this crazy stuff happens to him, right? There's constantly these ups and downs. Right. My favorite example is Hercules. Okay. Okay, because I love Hercules because of the, the mythology and everything else. So Hercules, you know, essentially is um, dropped onto Earth. Right. And, and is separated from Zeus and Hera. Um, and grows up with human parents and is constantly trying to figure out why he doesn't fit in, mm-hmm. you know, but, and then the song, you know, that really kind of brings it up is I can go the distance. You know what I mean? All I really want to do is try to find somewhere that I belong. And he goes on this journey, right? And that's the start. So act one is separation. And then they have this kind of descent into like madness not really madness but like that a descent into like pain some type of abyss that they're stuck in right and hercules is stuck in this abyss as a teenager is like this outlier he's really derpy he's really awkward he's constantly messing things up nobody really knows why he fits in he can't figure out why he doesn't belong but then at some point it switches and all of a sudden it goes into this act two it goes into the second phase where they're starting to discover themselves And so inside of our brains and when we're exploring this as this archetypal storyline and we're seeing ourselves as the hero, we can trace back to childhood, to adolescence, to early adulthood, to adulthood. It's why people that are in their 60s will still watch Disney movies because every single phase of life that you go through, you're relating to a different part of the movie. Wow. Your perception of the movie will completely shift. 
depending on what stage of psychological development you're in. Right. Dude, I'm like watching your brain melt. Well, because it in makes front of it's me like it's so much sense, like because it resonates. Like it's yeah. impossible for it to not resonate. Like right. this is the ultimate user experience. Yeah, and it's impossible for a ten year old to um, interpret what a sixty year old will be able to interpret out of a movie. But the sixty yeah. year old is going to vibe more with Zeus. It's trying right. to mentor Hercules. Yeah. Whereas the adolescent is going to vibe more with Hercules trying to find his way in the world. Timeless. Timeless. Completely timeless. Wow. Yeah. Because they hit every single one. That's why Disney is so cool. I, I loved it. I love researching Disney case studies. So the second phase, right, is this, okay. this supreme journey of discovery. Uh-huh. And now they're finding out their strengths. Hercules all of a sudden like figures out he's a demigod and like gets jacked up on roids. To the point where he's just, you know, like Zeus, he's like gaining all these powers and he comes into his own and now he's slaying hydras and, you know, doing his thing. And then they encounter some type of other um, issue, Mm -hmm. you know, and now that's Meg coming into the picture and Hades coming into the picture. Mm -hmm. Right. Because Hades is when wanting to eliminate Hercules for his entire existence. Right. You know, and now he has, I forget those two little. Oh, the, his Characters. minions? Yeah, the two little minions that follow him around. I forget yeah. what the names are. They were supposed to kill him, but they didn't. Yeah, but they didn't, and they, yeah. like, lied about it. And yeah. then all of a sudden, Hercules <laughs> came back, and they're like, shit, boss. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> I'm we, fine, I'm fine, everything's fine. We didn't murder him as a baby, just so you know. Because <laughs> um, they were trying to get him to drink that bottle, and he didn't drink the entire bottle, essentially. They were going to try to, he was going to drink this bottle of, like. Is that why he's half mortal? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because he was a full god at first. But now he's a demigod. But he didn't know that until he came into the himself as a story. Right. And so he comes into his own and he's starting to realize all this stuff. And then he becomes this explosive force of power. Right. And so now we have the descent into the abyss. And now we're on the rise. But on the rise up, they have to encounter another obstacle. Like it can't just be an overnight viral video style of a story. Right. Because right. that's that's not realistic. People can't relate to that. Right. Right. So it's like it goes down and it's these are really our apex principles, right? Like mm-hmm. you hit an apex and then you plateau, you might go down a little bit, but the goal is to chase the next one, not just continue going downwards. Right. So you hit that apex and now you're kind of rising, you're trying to figure out what the next path is. And then the act three is that mastery, the mastery of that task. Mm-hmm. And that's really where he like he he encounters conflict with Meg. Meg turns out to be a partner of Hades. Mm-hmm. you know, that's trying to sway him off of a path. It's a distraction, you know, something that's really trying to pull him away from his end goal. And we can all relate to that. Right. And we can all relate to like different distractions in life that are trying to pull us off of what we believe our purpose is. Mm-hmm. And that's another piece of the archetypal storyline. And so he conquers that distraction and it turns out that Meg is actually in love with him and Hades uses Meg to get to Hercules. And I think I'm pretty sure that he like tosses her soul into this pit, right? This circulating whirlpool yeah. of, of death. What is essentially the underworld. Which in the underworld, yeah. Right. And so Hercules uses his demigod powers to save Meg's soul. And then one of her tears brings him back to life. So there's this other abyss. But now it's an abyss of a hero. So at the beginning, he put himself in an abyss that he had to try to get out of. Right. And now at the end, he is in an abyss because he chose to be a hero and so it's showing people that you know being the hero doesn't always mean massive amounts of success sometimes being the hero means putting yourself at risk to save others right Right. but then he saves meg and her tears bring him back and so forming that bond with other people Mm -hmm. 
is the true strength. And then he beats the crap out of Hades and does his thing. And now it's like Zeus, Hera, him and Meg, but him and Meg choose to go live on earth. Yeah. You know, and that's the end of the storyline. That's the fourth threshold. That's the very, the final piece is he becomes this master of both sides. He becomes a master of himself and a master of the world around him. And they both become incorporated with each other. And that's the end of the story. So you start from this massive separation between what he believes himself to be capable of and what the storyline is trying to do to him. Mm -hmm. This descent into madness, this slow rise facing obstacles on the way up bit by bit, but he's still progressing one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, no matter how many times he gets punched in the face. And then he makes it to the top, encounters something that is so painful Mm -hmm. at at the rise to the top that it's like the woman that he believed that he loved betrays him, but he makes it through it. Their love conquers everything, mm-hmm. and then you have the happy ending, which is Disney. Wow! Yeah. You know, there's. I don't want to. I don't want to veer off topic, but I, I just got to hit this. I got to because it's like in my head. This relates to something I learned as as a psych student. Okay. There's this concept. It's called the Dunning Kruger effect, and basically what it is is as you first start out doing anything, you think that you know a lot. Mm-hmm. and that you, you're kind of a master at it. So basically you assume that your competency is actually higher than it is. Right. But then as you delve more, you realize you don't really know as much as you think you do. Mm-hmm. And so the Dunning-Kruger is basically like a U-shape. Right. And so you start off kind of high, and then as time goes on, you quickly realize you're kind of not the most competent person in whatever it is that you're trying to do. And at the bottom is this pit of despair. Right. And so that's like where depression and maybe like grief happens. But if you engage with it, you slowly rise and rise and rise and rise. But your competency, you know, increases as you encounter more and more obstacles because you're gaining more and more experience. Right. So this is like in the beginning, Hercules is like trying He's, he's like, obviously, you know, a very strong guy, right? Like, that's basically, like, a defining characteristic. Right. But because of his strength, he can't fit in. But then as, you know, so he's kind of falling into the this pit of despair because he's an outcast. Right. Until he realizes that he's actually meant for a g- greater purpose. Right. And so he counters, you know, the monsters. And after every monster... He's on that upward slope of enlightenment. Because if I remember Dunning-Kruger correctly, it's like the peak of Mount Stupid (laughs) down into the valley of despair. Right. And then climbing up the slope of enlightenment and then reaching the plateau of sustainability. Yeah. If I remember that principle correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people get stuck at the peak of Mount Stupid. (laughs) Um, Or they get stuck in the valley of despair. Right. Because being at the peak of Mount Stupid is, is intellectual hubris. Yeah. It's, and for those of you that, I mean, that's a really fancy term for basically believing that you know it all. I feel like another word would be, a simpler word would be naive. Naive, yeah. Well, naive is a little bit different, I think. Like naive is like you haven't even interacted with the world enough to know Mm -hmm. any different. I feel like with Dunning and Kruger, the peak of Mount Stupid is a choice. Like you've Mm -hmm. experienced the world and you refuse to acknowledge it. And then that valley of despair uh-huh. is the world punching you in the mouth 
because you believe that you know so much that you refuse to acknowledge the fact that you have anything to learn. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, you get blindsided by a train because you've refused to learn anything. Wow. Whereas naivety is like, you're just blissfully unaware Hmm. of what's going on. And then that valley of despair, that climb back up, that slope of enlightenment Mm -hmm. is the, I would, I believed that I knew too much. I found out that I don't know anything. Yeah. And now I'm slowly starting to rebuild my ego. Right. Up this slope. And then I reach a plateau where I'm like, okay, now I'm confident in my abilities, but I'm also aware. I mean, we had this conversation yesterday. Like I am aware of the things that I don't know. Yeah. I'm aware that I don't know a lot. And the more that you learn, it's this weird cycle inside of somebody's story because Uh the more that you learn about your own story and the stories of others, the more you realize you don't know about the world. Yeah. And sometimes that can lead to like anxiety based paralysis because you start to realize how much you don't know. Right. I feel like this is what happened to me with <laughs> with yeah. grad school. Yeah. It's like I'm struggling because like when I'm, like I've always been a good writer. I've always, you know, I coming from uh undergrad, I was I I would say I was one of the best students in my major. Right. And I was like riding this high like holy shit, I'm successful. I graduated college. I'm the first male in my family to do so like <laughs> right? But then I reached grad school and I'm surrounded by all of these people who know a lot more than I do. They know how to have conversations of like theoretical concepts. And I'm just like, I feel like an infant. <laughs> I feel, ah, I really, dude. I don't, I like, goo goo guy yeah. has their like, I really about felt like that. I, theoretical you know, particle physics. And so I have a story. Um, when Ooh, I was in grad perfect. school, we're telling stories. On this <laughs> I, I went to, I went to Boston. 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 And there was a conference that was happening. It was a bunch of uh, army research lab uh, scientists coming Mm -hmm. together and talking about, uh, you know, what the army wants to do research on. Um, Basically in the context of like artificial intelligence. So, you know, I'm a master's student. And by the way, I'm the only master's student. Everyone else already has their PhDs. They've been in the field for like five, 10, 15 years. Yeah, so Dude, you're just like drooling at the mouth. Like, imagine having a week long headache on. and feeling like you're the dumbest person alive, <laughs> which is basically what infants are, right? right like, they don't right. know anything. Yeah. And it's like, that's how I felt. But that's a beauty. You know, you know what's really, really cool about not knowing anything? What's that? You know, what's, you know what infants have a really, really cool ability to do? You know what neuroplasticity is? God, I want to embarrass myself as a psych guy. No, oh, you're good. Uh, is it like, basically, isn't it like they absorb a lot of information? Yeah, they can absorb a lot of information extremely quickly. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, I'm cheating. I'm going to look up the definition so that I'm not blowing smoke up people's butts. Sorry. But, okay, so neuroplasticity is the ability of neural networks in the brain to change through growth and reorganization. These yep. changes range from individual neurons making new connections to systematic adjustments like remapping of brain pathways. Right. So infants... Mm-hmm. have a very high ability to be neuroplastic. They have the ability to grow new pathways to form these new things because they're constantly learning. Right. Right. So the beautiful thing about being an infant in a situation is that you have the ability to be a sponge and that you have the highest propensity 
for learning growth. Mm-hmm. Because if you start at zero, it's it's a lot easier. It's like in bodybuilding, right? If we were to ask RJ this question, it's a lot easier to get from 22% body fat down to 20% body fat. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get from 12% body fat down to 8% body fat. Yeah. Right? So you being in that room with all of these knowledgeable people mm-hmm. is the biggest advantage you could have ever. Because you are the most neuroplastic person in that room. Because mm-hmm. you know the least. So you have the highest potential for growth yeah. out of anybody in that room. That is beautiful. I, I love that. <laughs> I, I try to tell people that all the time. Like don't avoid situations that you feel is going to make you feel dumb. Mm-hmm. Put yourself in there and just say, I'm here to learn. Yeah. Accept the fact that you know a lot less than everybody in the room. But if you are, say, a sprinter mm-hmm. and you're constantly running races against high school sprinters and whooping their butts, what is that actually doing for you? Get on the track with some Olympic level sprinters. Even if you finish last every single time, mm-hmm. your time at the end of the training of the six weeks is still going to be exponentially better than if you were just training with those high school sprinters. Yeah. Because you're going to be pushing yourself harder. I feel like this is another thing with uh, the s- stories. One of the, because if you become self-aware, you realize what you succeeded in, right? Right. And I feel like once you realize that you're successful, this is where you start to plateau. Because with the apex uh, um, motto is like, you've reached an apex, let's find another one. Right. I feel like with if you're successful, once you reach the apex, a lot of people don't go find another one. No, it's really easy to plateau. Right. You know, it's really easy to get comfortable at the top. Yeah. And that's, that's where you get disrupted. Mm-hmm. that's exactly where you get disrupted. So like when you reach that next phase, um, it's okay to take a week or two and be like, okay, let's figure out where we're at. It's okay to maybe even take a quarter to right. do that, to analyze data, to say like, okay, Hey, we found this new position. Let's figure out where we're at. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's not okay to do that for five years. Yeah. Because then you're, you are just asking to get kicked in the teeth. You know, and that's yeah. why we're so passionate about using data and machine learning and storytelling right now. And and one thing that I want to hit on is, is there's this fear, I think, that like machine learning and artificial intelligence is going to kill creative storytelling. It's going to kill creativity because you're going to have all of these specific insights and everything and the machines are going to be able to tell the stories and engage us in ways that we're not even going to be able to subconsciously detect and blah, 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 blah. That's right. a, a, a load of hooey. Right. Like that's yeah, just is. BS whatsoever. Yeah. I think that I'm actually on the opposite side of that spectrum. Right. I think that machine learning and some of this, like the, the analytics that we have access to mm-hmm. are actually enhancing storytelling. Right. They're enhancing creativity because creatives like being creative. Right. And I know that sounds dumb, but creatives, their favorite part of life is being able to take a cool ass picture, being able to make a really dope video for an ad, mm-hmm. being able to write something and look at like, I love writing so much because I like, like my dad always used to tell me, find a word that sings when Whoa. you're writing a paragraph mm-hmm. and something doesn't feel right. Get out of thesaurus, get out a dictionary. And if there's that one word in the sentence that just it's functional yeah. But it's not quite there yet. Right. Look up some synonyms and find a word that sings to you. 
and put that word in the paragraph and it can completely change the tone of the paragraph. Yeah. You know, and that's a beautiful to me. And so what machine learning is allowing us to do, like inside of our data sets, if we're able to pull, say for example, we're using um, one of our, our, our psychographic data sets that we attach to somebody's website. Right. And we're able to go into their Google Analytics and we pull the psychographic segments of all of the um, people that are interacting with their site and what their personality types are. Mm-hmm. What it allows me to do is it allows me to really narrow down what do I want to talk about. And then I get to just focus on writing a story, which is my favorite part. I'm not spending 30 or 60 days of my client's money trying to figure out what story to tell because I can pull it in seven minutes. And now I'm skipping all of that process to try to figure out who to tell a story to. Mm-hmm. And just focusing on writing the story, focusing on taking the picture, focusing on making the video to engage them and then getting real time feedback from them and saying, oh, well, that did really well. Cool. We'll make another one for you guys since you liked it, you know, or if they don't engage with it we're like, well, that turd didn't stick to the whiteboard. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. Right. But it really, it empowers creatives more than anything. The important thing is that you know how to use the data correctly. Mm-hmm. And then that's the big thing. There's two different camps of machine learning, right? There's, there's research machine learning and then there's applied machine learning. Mm-hmm. And the research machine learning, like our data partners, they're more on the track of, you know, we know how to make an oven, but we have no idea how to bake a cake. Mm-hmm. We're on the applied machine learning side. Where we're getting really, really good at baking cakes with this badass oven. And that's the key. You need both. Yeah. And so you can go out there and find data sets by all means. Go out and, and find data sets. But unless you have a team like, like our team, I'm extremely proud of mm-hmm. because we all bring different creative insights into the picture. Unless you have a team that knows how to put the flour together with the eggs, with the right amount of milk and baking powder and everything else in order to make a cake. Yeah. May the odds be ever in your favor. Because there's a, so much data out there. Mm-hmm. You have to know how to be able to pull insights from it. Yeah. And that's going to be a, another episode uh, that we're going to have. Oh, yeah. So Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to that episode being expanded on. Teaser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> um, but no, that's that's a really good point you bring up because, um, you know, one, um, one of the things that I've heard a lot being said is how data is this new oil yeah. concept. Um, yep. But it's like... No one's going to want to just look at raw data sets. You have to be able to take that craft a narrative and then make decisions. Uh, I feel, and that's another reason why I think that um, storytelling is so important for businesses Mm -hmm. is because like um, you can't just, the, the amount of data that is required to gain understanding of anything is just, it, it's so much. Right. Like you can't even, you can't just have like 30,000 data points. Yeah, no, we, we're, we're using over 8 billion yeah. data points. Right. That's how uh, like intense it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, f- like. Which is f- why I just want to focus on baking the cake. Right. Like, <laughs> because from that, like you need to be able to extract what's most important. But if you're, you know, if you're just saying like the data has shown this which is what like researchers do, right? Right. But if you can go a step further and say, 
the data has shown this. We believe that is going to lead to X, Y, and Z things. And that's what we should capitalize on. Right. Like, yeah, you're taking a risk, but you're taking a calculated risk, right? You're using data to inform your decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, that there's nothing, there's nothing more credible than 8 billion data points because it's, you know, it's coming from so many different people. Right. And that's the human centric approach to making data decisions. It's like the data is out there, you've collected it. And now you can use it to inform a decision. Right. This is where you gain insights into what the new trends are going to be in business. This is how you can create new trends in business as well. Because at the end of the day, you know, if, if you're just going to provide a service or make a product, but you're not going to look at who's out there, who's that's going to use it and what, what it is that people actually need. You're just making assumptions. Mm-hmm. You're going to really have a hard time getting that product onto the shelf. Right. Right. And so, and I think another reason why storytelling is so important for business beyond like providing products and services is like, if you want, um, your end consumer to understand what your business is and why you started it. You know that you have to have a story because mm-hmm. one of the things that like, and I've been thinking about this for the past couple of weeks is business is one of the best things you can do to help people. Like I know we talk oh, about yeah. like, like we go, like people go into the medical fields and mental health fields because they want to help people. But if you essentially look at it, a business is, you know, you're, you're, you're in the helping people industry. Yeah, that you should be. Yeah. I mean, that, that's your, should be your number one priority. Yeah. So if you can tell the story of like what problem it is that you encountered in your life, how you started a business from that problem and how you scaled your business so that you could help more and more people, that's right. going to help engage your audience a lot more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm going to be giving a speech um, this coming Monday at the University of Akron to their their PR club. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the title that we came up with together, um, me and Julie, um, their, their um, facility advisor, or their mm-hmm. faculty advisor, sorry, um, was a human-centric media model. And, and we settled on that because I really believe um, that media needs to be human-centric, not consumer behavior-centric. Like there's, there's a difference. Because Explain that a little up bit. And, up until this point, right, mm-hmm. consumer behavior has been looked at as stats. Right. It's been looked at as metrics, mm-hmm. return on investment. Um, you know, you put out a piece of content and if it doesn't show green arrows, you nix it and you move on to another piece of content that shows green arrows. Um, but a lot of those green arrows are focused on impressions, awareness, engagement. Um Whereas what we've seen is uh, like just today, I, I mentioned to a client, you know, we're not going to try to come up with one 60 second ad and then beat the living crap out of it. I want to come up with a series of things that you're going to be able to talk to that is going to empathize with your end consumer and educate them on something and make them feel like they're a part of your story. Mm-hmm. Not a 60 second ad that gets a whole bunch of likes. What's the actual ROI? What, what is the ROI on that? The ROI on that might be engagement metrics, but is it that forming a relationship with your customer base? Ooh. If it's not, you're going to die in the long run. Mm-hmm. You're going to get beat out. 
because with uh, Amazon Alexa, with Google Home, with all these voices coming out, right. if you're not, if, if somebody's in their house and they say, hey, Alexa, you know, um, we'll use us for example. Mm-hmm. If they say, hey, Alexa, you know, who is a branding and marketing consultant in my area? And we're not putting out a whole bunch of content related to educating clients on that stuff. The Amazon algorithm is going to pick somebody else to say back to them. But if you're building that relationship with your end consumer and you're putting out a whole bunch of quality content and you're educating people talking about you online, mm-hmm. people are starting to engage with you and they're really becoming involved in your community. When Alexa says Apex Communications Network is the lead blah, blah, blah inside of your area, we win. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Businesses win because they formed a relationship. That's the difference between consumer behavior centric models and a human centric media model. It's not all about the ROI mm-hmm. immediately. It's or about do, the long-term relationship. Do, do you think that you know, there are businesses that are very consumer centric based and they're looking at these vanity metrics? <sighs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I feel, I feel like the majority of businesses that believe that they're acting correctly inside of social media, mm-hmm. um, the standard social media agency model, that's what they do. They look at vanity metrics. They look at um, SEO. You know, and I'm not saying the SEO isn't important. SEO is extremely important. Right. Google is extremely important. Being on Google My Business. But you can still make that a human-centric approach. It's just a fundamental shift that's going to have to happen. Because most of people's buying decisions now mm-hmm. aren't made based off of what they see on your site or what they even see on a competitor's site. For example, me and my little brother, we went to Target to buy a TV, right? Mm-hmm. And I always try to pay attention to the way me and him interact because we're two, gen- two different generations technically. You know, I'm millennial, he's Gen Z. Right. And there's only a seven-year gap, but in that seven years, so much tech happened that the way that we interact with the world are completely fundamentally different. Right. So we're inside a Target looking at TVs, right? And <clears throat> I was trying to decide between two TVs and Sam was like, all right, well, here, you look up this TV on Google. I'll look up this TV on Google. We'll both read Amazon reviews on both of them. And then we can like let people that have already purchased the TVs make decisions for us. Right. Right. So I'm like, holy crap. You know, most people would be like, oh yeah, obviously you're going to look up reviews on products. But I was like, you know what? We, we did not have that capability. For a long time, people would go into stores Mm -hmm. and just trust Target. That was a thing. Like whatever brand had the best marketing to get people in the store, that's who you trusted. It was all about product quality and service. Mm -hmm. Now, it's about what stories are people telling about your product or service in the comments? What stories are they telling about the, the, the quality of the TV, the picture, the sound quality, the customer service if something went wrong? You know, what stories are that, that, and that fundamentally shifts the buying decision. So we're in the store, physically in the store, online on our mobile phones, looking at reviews. And then I ended up using the reviews to pick the opposite TV that I was anticipating because the TV that I wanted to purchase only had 4.1 stars, whereas the other one had 4.7 and the 4.1 star reviews were because a statistically high number of people had had a screen go out within the first year of purchase. Damn. That's a fundamental shift. Mm-hmm. That's a human centric approach. That's me looking to another human to tell me a story about a TV they purchased, influencing my buying decision in the physical store. That's crazy. 
No, it's, it's really power of storytelling. It's, it's, yeah, it's insane because like reviews have been around for a while, mm-hmm. but like now we're getting it's. It, I feel like it's we're we're so aware of the fact that we can read reviews on anything, right? That it's really forcing companies because with that story, right? Like, um, the the TV that you decided to buy. Like that company who makes that TV, like they win, right? Right. But let's say there were no reviews. Let's say there were no such things as reviews. So you couldn't look it up on Google. You couldn't look it up on Amazon to read the reviews. That other company that you didn't buy the TV from, you know, they they can't know. There's no way of knowing that uh, a lot of people's screens have cracked. Right. And hopefully what that other company is doing is is looking at these reviews and they're looking at the fact that a lot of people are saying the screens crack. Right, right. So in, in essence, like the the brand that you went with to buy a TV from, like they won because you gave them, they make the money off of your purchase, right? Mm-hmm. But the other company is also winning because they're learning where the weaknesses are. Right. And they can, and then they can adjust their weakness. Yeah. If you're yeah. paying attention to the comments, yeah. do you know how many business moves ways that I've made specifically because I put out comments on Facebook and I read 50 comments. Like I really try to take that Gary Vee approach. Like that's why I'm constantly on my phone. Yeah. I'm just constantly reading comments, gauging our local market. Right. You know, I'm not putting out a survey or reading some case study that the County put out or reading. You know, I'm reading my audience. Yeah. And seeing what they're saying, what they're talking about, what their concerns are. Because I don't care about whatever what everybody else is doing. I don't. Oh. Like, I genuinely only care about taking care of my customers and taking care of the people that I want to try to raise this yeah. tide with. I think that one of the biggest things is, is this blissful unawareness that people have of the fact that you can do that. You know, that you can engage and that's that the power of personal branding. And we can get into that on a completely separate episode. You know, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah. But the power that comes with becoming a thought leader or an influencer inside of your space and how much data you can get back from the human story. Right. You know, and the thing is, is that it, on the extreme, if there's two companies or... Um, actually we'll set, we'll, we'll, we'll completely change this over, right? We'll, we'll switch to a different topic just so people can see how this principle is applied in a bunch of different areas. Let's do it. So say you're a company that's trying to hire, you're trying to acquire talent, right? And your executive team at your company does not have LinkedIn profiles, but the executives of a competitive company have LinkedIn profiles mm-hmm. that are completely filled out, full of articles, full of input, full of their personality. If you're trying to attract millennial age talent mm-hmm. to your organization. First thing that they're going to do is log into LinkedIn and try to get a gauge of what your company's personality type is based mm-hmm. off of your company's LinkedIn profiles. Right. Right. If you have your exec team, none of them have LinkedIn profiles. Those millennials are going to be very off put by your company. Yep. But if your exec team has really phenomenal personal brands, and feel open, they feel inviting, they feel innovative, they feel like they're pushing the industry, you're going to acquire talents all day. Mm-hmm. You're going to acquire customers all day because they're going to be able to read a story about you, who you are, 
why you do what you do, how you do what you do. It's a completely different vibe, right? So whether you're trying to buy a TV or you're trying to figure out where you're going to settle in for your place of work, mm-hmm. the same principle applies. You're looking for a story. That's another interesting like concept, how our like one person's story could be used to attract 10 people because they all have their own story and they're trying to see right. where it all meshes. Yeah. And they, they're trying to see themselves in your story. Right. You know, and that's the thing. Like when I, you, I always crack the joke that I like pursued you for like a year, right. To come <laughs> in, come on to our team. But right. like, I, it's because I, after that podcast episode that we recorded the first time I blatantly saw, I mean, I was amped. If you go back and listen to that podcast episode, I was like, bro, I was like, we're talking <laughs> about the same things. I just didn't know that we're talking about the same things. Yeah. Um, but I could, I saw instantly, I saw the vision of how those two storylines could collide and be beneficial. Mm-hmm. I didn't see an employee. I saw a story that could grow into something just absolutely phenomenal. Right. And that's what I try to, I mean, that's the, the rose colored glasses, I guess, that I wear is everywhere I look, I see a potential story to tell. And that makes my life extremely fun. Like I I wake up every day with this immense amount of gratitude because I get to tell another part of my story. I get to write another page of my story today and help businesses write pages of their books. I think it's this draw of like wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. I agree. Because I think at the end of the day, like another reason why we do what we do. And this is like one of the things that I wanted to hit on before we wrap up. We've been talking for quite some time now. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to hit on was like um, this idea of legacy. Mm. And it's like we do what we do because I'm going to get dark here, but like everyone knows they're going to die one day. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Right. So how do you make yourself immortal? Mm. And it's, it reminds me of this scene from, I don't know if you've watched Troy. Yeah. With Brad Pitt. Yeah. It's the one of the, the like the first scene of um, Achilles, the Brad Pitt's character is like. Yeah, the massive Grecian war hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, he, he, it's like it's, this little boy is sent to get Achilles. Right. And then um, Achilles, like he's on his horse and the little boy looks up to Achilles and he's like, um, I've seen the guy that they want you to fight. I wouldn't fight that guy. Right. And Brad Pitt's like, that's why no one will remember you. Oof. Oof. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think this is, um, like you it's actually a on- very key part of my speech when I gave the, the speech at Walsh, mm-hmm. like my, and it's actually my favorite line that I wrote in that speech. It's be the person that generations from now, your grandchildren will listen to the chronicles of your life as a bedtime story. Yeah. I love that line. I have no idea where it came from. I mean, I just, it's, it's something that I think it's because I looked up to my grandfather so much Mm -hmm. that, I mean, I plan on telling my grandchildren stories about him. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be long gone. I mean, he'll be dead 20 plus years by the time I have kids more than likely. Mm -hmm. His stories are going to continue to impact generations of our family for generations to come. But I think that like it, it sounds so weird because it's like we get taught to stay away from danger, right? Mm-hmm. Like be the type of person who's smart enough to realize that a, a situation is dangerous, but 
But at the same time, we go out there yeah. to find these metaphorical dragons and slay them. Exactly. Because yep. we want to be remembered. Right. And, and, and that's something that like my aunt always points out to me as part of like my storyline mm-hmm. is that she, because my mom um, being a first generation immigrant had a, a very different like style, I guess, of, of raising us as kids. Because mm-hmm. um, like in Slovakia, I mean, it's just kind of like out the door and then you're just like gone the majority of the day and then you come back yeah. right um and that's how a lot of boomers grow up that's how a lot of latchkey kids grew up in the side of the gen x and everything like that is you know you know come back when the street lights come on you know and, and one of my biggest fears for these younger generations is that, that that principle is kind of lost you know that that welcoming of the danger that mm-hmm. welcoming of the unknown because they've had so much information available to them for so long that the unknown freaks them out and I've always been the kind of person, my mom has told me this ever since I was a little kid, that anytime there was anything dangerous happening, she would look to her left, look to her right, and I would be sprinting towards whatever was blowing up. <laughs> um, and that's been true throughout my life. I mean, I've gotten into scuffles at Blossom because some guy punches some other guy and I'm sprinting to get into the middle of it to make sure a girl doesn't get hit. You know? Yeah. Um, I joined the military. Mm-hmm. I, I'm an ICU nurse. Every, I've, I started really analyzing it. Every single decision that I've made in my life has been sprinting towards the unknown. Full on head, like it's probably to the point of ignorance. Like yeah. it, it's almost debilitating because there'll be times where like, I don't really want to get involved. And then I blink and all of a sudden I'm in the middle. I can't, I can't help it. Mm. I just, I'm attracted to that disruption. I'm attracted to that danger because I really do believe like Troy right? Like Achilles Yeah. that, oh, that's some person that I wouldn't fight. Well, cool. You know, but if I don't fight him, who's going to? Yeah. That's the way I look at it. If, if, if we don't stand up for something, if everybody in the world was like, "Mm, no, that problem's too big for me to solve. Yeah. What happens to innovation? Nothing like there's nothing that happened. Mm -hmm. Thomas Edison wouldn't have invented a light bulb. He would have quit after the first 50 times he failed. Yeah. Right. Henry Ford wouldn't have invented vehicles. The Wright brothers would have quit before they figured out how to fly. Yeah. All of those people sprinted towards the unknown. And this reminds me of another movie scene from National Treasure. Mm. Like there, uh, Nicolas Cage is there in the wherever the Declaration of Independence is kept. Right. I don't know where that is. Um, the Library of Congress, I think. It might be. I think it's on display somewhere down there. Yeah. If, if you guys know, go ahead and comment or write in. Let us know where it's located. Yeah. And he's he's looking at this thing and he's reading the Declaration of Independence and the part where like if governments don't respect people's rights, the people have the responsibility to overthrow that government and install right. a new government in its place. And he, he he's like, people don't talk like that anymore. And the other guy's like, I have no idea what you just read. And he's like, if you have the responsibility, if you have the capability of doing the right thing, you have the responsibility of doing the right thing. Amen. And I think a lot of people live up to that code. And like, mm-hmm. that's probably why you find yourself in those situations <laughs> in those all the time. Si- yeah. Yeah. Cause my mom always told me that like, I mean, we're a very Catholic family, mm-hmm. right? So we're very religious. Um, and, and regardless of whether you're Catholic, Christian, you're, you know, Muslim, you're Hindu, you're Taoist, you're Taoist, you know, whatever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, there's uh, the general consensus is that you're born with a specific 
set of talents that you're equipped with to complete your story. Yep. Right. And this is, this will actually be a really good way to kind of wrap everything up mm-hmm. is that you're born with a specific set of talent and an innate abilities and through nature versus nurture or whatever else, those talents and those abilities are either accentuated or they shove you down into the abyss because people keep telling you no over and over and over and over and over again throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have these talents that you're given. And my parents were always like, it is your responsibility to identify those talents and use every single ounce that you have to better the world around you, mm-hmm. whether that's impacting people, whether it's a business, whether it's whatever else. And so that's why I think I constantly find myself in those situations because I've identified the things that I'm good at. I know the things that I suck at. So I really try to avoid the things that I really suck at. Like I, I try to beef up my weak points, but that's why we have a team, right? Yeah. Because like where I suck, you guys are good and you guys kind of fill in the gaps. Um, but if you refuse to acknowledge the things that you're good at and really focus on honing them in, then you get stuck in this kind of weird place where you don't feel like you have a purpose. And that's a really dark place to be because now you're no longer the hero of your own storyline. But the first thing, and this is what I really wanted to end on, like if we're going to give any piece of practical advice to people to how to figure out how to become the hero of their own Mm storyline, figure out what you're good at and beat the shit out of it. Yeah. Until you get to be the expert at it. And it's not going to happen overnight. It may take a long, it may take a long time. It It will take years. It might take years. It'll, it, it, it may take months. It may take years, but it's not going to happen overnight. Right. But if you can identify those things that you're really, really passionate about and really, really good at and then continually use those on a daily basis to impact people, mm-hmm. it may not be monetary compensation that happens, but I guarantee you that the whole law of attraction, good karma, bad karma type of vibes, the energy that you're putting out in the universe will be returned to you tenfold. I can almost guarantee that. Yep. Because every single time I've ended up in a shitty situation mm-hmm. because of my inability to avoid conflict, Three months later, a situation happens that I would have never anticipated because I was involved in that conflict specifically. You just have to be willing to jump off the cliff and not really care about what's at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Take risks. Take risks. Trust yourself. Yeah, because we all got, you have a lot more talent than you think you do. If you're listening to this and you're like, well, Jan, like that's easy for you to say. I hear that all the time. It's not easy for us to say all the time. All the time I hear that. It's like, oh, this is easy for you to say. You're like, you got this going on. I'm like, man, you know how many nights I spent up bawling on my balcony wondering if I was actually batshit crazy? Mm -hmm. Because like the majority of people were telling me that I was insane for like not wanting to be a nurse. Like I already have my nursing and a psych minor and in the military and doing all this other stuff. Like, why are you quitting the hospital? You know how much money you make at the hospital and the benefits that you have at the hospital and family members even, you know? Like, what are you doing with your life? Why are you throwing every? That's what that's what I constantly heard. Why are you throwing everything away? Yeah. So it's not easy. None of it's easy, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. Yep. And that's my message. That's what I'll end on. It's not easy, but it's worth it. So keep trying to write your own story. And, and another thing, I this will be my piece of advice, I guess, is you are going to fail, but you're not dead. Welcome it. Yeah. Welcome the failure with open arms. Yeah. And it's, it, I feel like a lot of people like deeply they're like, uh, if they fail, it's like dying and they yeah. feel like they can't do it again. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
you're going to fail. Just keep going. Over and over. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if you can fail fast, fail hard, learn quick. Mm -hmm. Put out an idea. Fail as quickly as possible so that you can learn. And this is on like the first iteration. Obviously, you don't want to take this. Like if you've been working on an idea for six months and you put it out there and it fails within 30 seconds, that's not good. <laughs> but like if you have an idea, yeah, this is why I live stream spontaneously so much. I'll have an idea. I put it out there. I get good audience response. Put something out there again. Get an idea. Put it out there. Audience hates it. Cool. We won't do that again. <laughs> and then move on. Yeah. Right. Fail fast. Fail hard. Mm-hmm. Learn quick. Yep. So it's like this simple synergistic loop that you can just use over and over again, but you have to be really, really be comfortable with failing over and over and over again. That's the only way that you're going to get through enough iterations of something to get to the point where you have something that works well. And that's okay. That's yeah. another thing. Fail, try again, fail again, try better. Yeah. All that's okay. All of that is okay. And it's fun. If you can learn to enjoy the journey rather yeah. than focusing on the end result, that's where failure becomes fun. Yeah. Because it's a part of the journey. It's all a part of the story. You know, when me and Jake drove down to South Carolina and back to pick up the furniture for the office in 23 and a half hours, mm-hmm. we drove for almost 24 hours straight. Jesus. Some of our favorite memories from that trip are when like Jake thought that he lost his iPad, but it was really <laughs> in the back seat. <laughs> And he was supposed to be my navigator tell me what exits to get off of. And I accidentally diverted onto the wrong exit and it took us an extra hour to get back out of Charlotte, North Carolina <laughs> traffic. <laughs> I was so pissed <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Right? Now it's one of our, we laugh about it all the time because yeah. it was one of our, it's one of our favorite failures from that trip. But in the end we succeeded and got the furniture back up here. But that's one of those things. It was just like you failed. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, it is. Um, I think that was a good wrap up and thank you for listening people. If they, if they want to tune in, um, we're going to be releasing these episodes every Friday. Um, so this one, you guys are going to be hearing, uh, after the introductions and everything like that. But who do we have coming up next Trace? We have Justin Storch. Justin Woods. Justin Woods. Justin Woods. Woods. That's Jason. <laughs> Jason. There's so many Storch. J's. <laughs> There's so many. Hey, listen, J's. trust me. Me, Justin, and Jason, and John talk about it all the time. There's, there's Jan. There's Jacob Popio. There's Justin Woods. There's Jason Storch. There's John Coons. Yep, it's all Jays. All Jays. All Jays. Yes. James. James Warnkin. James. You hired another J. R. J. Holiday. Robert James. Yeah. Oh boy. But all right, everybody. So this has been another episode of the Disruptor on Apex Communications Network. If you want to tune in next week. I believe that uh, the conversation with Justin is going to be centered around um, human-centric sales approaches and how to interact with people as far as sales go. Um, And that's going to be pretty much a theme throughout the entire Disruptors. How do we keep things human-centric? How do we innovate and disrupt these industries when it comes to these different styles? From marketing and storytelling, which is really going to be my expertise, to sales, which is Justin's realm, to data analytics, which is really Shway's and Jason Storch. And then wrapping it up with an actual real world disruptor mm-hmm. with John Coons. So much love and we'll talk to you guys soon. Peace out. <laughs>